Hello friends and welcome back. Oh please, yeah, I know, I know, this has been a very, very quick one. Three episodes in a week. I am amazing. Welcome back to the role-playing game interview room. This is a podcast in which we take somebody who knows something about role-playing games for whatever reason and we interview the hell out of them. I am Paco Garcia, your host and rather crazy interviewer of um, today. I actually, I can say quite safely, a very, very, very knowledgeable man who is about to have a, a Kickstarter experience. Uh, Mike Myler, welcome, sir. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you doing, Paco? I am very, very well indeed. Y you are in what I like to call the pre-Kickstarter stress syndrome disorder stage. Okay, what are the symptoms of that? Um, well, so I know. Well, as far as I know, you have been sleeping very little, you are very tired, and you cannot wait to just get this pig started and, and see where the Kickstarter goes, which is very, very exciting. Yeah, no, that's the, those are all accurate. Yeah, I guess I got it. <laughs> okay, you are in seriousness. Uh, you are about to, to start a Kickstarter for a product that you've been developing with um, Rogue Genius Games called mm -hmm. the, the Veranthia Codex, which is a campaign setting for a Pathfinder. I have a gazillion questions to ask you about that, like, like a gazillion and a half. But before we go into that, for those, of, uh, those people out there who may not know for whatever reason who you are, um, tell us a little bit about you and your past. Oh, well. First, I want to I want to correct you because the Veranthi Codex is not just a campaign setting. It's also like a, it's like a third campaign setting, a third advanced players guide, and then a third NPC codex mm -hmm. with the advanced classes from uh, the advanced players guide and the uh, ultimate combat, and ultimate magic. So okay. like Magus and Alchemists and Oracles in the back. I uh, started doing this full time a little over a year ago. I've published with, uh, I was the lead editor of Rise of the Drow and one of the guest authors. I wrote about a sixth of the book. It was great. It was an amazing experience. I also worked on the Tome of Decay for Fantasy Flight Games. Mm -hmm. I wrote the world of Meyer, and they ended up using that for the adventure to like cap the Black Crusade RPG, which was exhilarating. I published with over, or I, I published or I am publishing with uh, over two dozen different companies, including the now core rulebook for EN World. Mm -hmm. uh, that's great Kickstarter, uh, What's Old is New. I'm writing the middle book. It's like an action movie RPG. It's coming along very well. Uh, I've Green Ronin picked me up for something in the Super Beastiary that they're doing, the Advanced Beastiary. Um, who else? It, there's, just, there, there's a lot. It's a lot to keep track of. It, it must be brilliant to have done so many things that you can barely remember them all. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've just got my head so cluttered with the Veranthia stuff, you know? <laughs> Which is fair enough indeed. I mean, obviously, you've been very busy with this. It looks like it's going to be a mammoth task to have everything going. And, and you haven't even started to get stretch goals um, hitting yet. Uh, which it means it's going to be even more work. Right. Uh, the Veranthia Codex. Uh, you've already mentioned that it's going to be uh, an NPC codex. It's going to be a campaign set. It's going to be a huge, huge thing. What should we know about it? Well, uh, let's start with the premise. Let's start there. Uh, so for the campaign setting itself, this is my house setting, obviously. I've been playing uh, Pathfinder in here since my first Pathfinder game. And actually, my first, my first PC, which became an NPC because of uh, plot reasons, 
is on the cover, the giant half dragon guy, mm-hmm. Boris, Boris the Green Avenger. Yeah, that was my first Pathfinder guy. So it's really uh, incredible to just look at that thing. But uh, Varanthia is <clears throat> three continents, right? There's Crithadnus, which is your like standard Western fantasy continent that we all know and love. Lots of wild magics and like they're, they've got simple firearms and uh, plain plain steampunk devices. And then there's Urethiol, which has almost no technology because everyone is inherently magical or resistant to magic. So uh, it's like a high fantasy with lots of Eastern themes for you know, Japanese folklore and Chinese mythology and stuff like that. And then uh, Trek Toiri, where I, I, I wanted to have like an industrialized society with access to high technology, but I didn't want it to be... There are, there are lots of those. There's, there's Terra, there's... Uh, Rune is great. I do a lot of work for Storm Bunny Studios uh, with Rune. They're a wonderful setting. But um, I really wanted to make mine unique. And so in Trek Toiri, uh, it's ruled over by the goblins and the orcs and the ogres and the trolls and all the monstrous races. There's, there's like a small island of uh, freedom-fighting, conscription, uh, democratic socialist city-states called Omanara. But for the most part, when you're playing in Trek Toiri, you should be a goblin rolling around on a motorcycle <laughs> or you know, flying a jet plane or something like that. So uh, it's really crazy. And that all, that all functions on, the, on this basic premise about um, the god of the sea and vengeance uh, being like, nobody is going to travel across the ocean because I said so, and just striking them down. So in order to do it, you have to be an enormous creature, like an elder dragon, uh, which are all fleeing from Trektori because jets, uh, or you have to be an enormous aircraft vehicle, which the goblins of Trektori have just finished making. So uh, as the book opens, um, the GM has the option of... Uh, uh, starting to allow the, the the various nations to interact with one of the Earth continents, I should say. And then there's more too, but those are stretch goals. We'll get there. Yeah. How do you gel together to make? Um, I'm not going to say credible, but at the very least plausible, the the high fantasy of, of of creatures being inherently magic with the steampunk, without it looking all weird and strange and wondering how can you put them all together. Nobody can had contact between Urethiol and Grithadnus and Trektori, with the exception of maybe you know people with access to ninth level magic, which are very few indeed. Uh, the only uh, actual interaction, well, I mean, there's the Forever Dark and the Horror people have access to these tunnels that run from continent to continent, but nobody wants to go to the Forever Dark because uh, rarely do you return. And then um, in Urethiol, we do have one section of the like high magic, no tech continent where they interact with the rest of the world. Uh, but that's, again, that's a stretch goal. Uh, one of the things we were talking about as I set this up, I've been calling it BSP for, for months and months and months, and somebody on the Paizo forums was like, Battle Savvy Penguins? And I was like, maybe? And then my <laughs> Urethio writer was like, no, we can do Battle Savvy Penguins. We can do that. And he sent me this fantastic pitch for uh, the death of the heavens. So um, real, real shotgun history. Uh, there's this ancient Trex empire. So 2,000 years ago, uh, they were enslaving the entire world, really only resisted by Jabberwocks and Grithadnus, Imperial Dragons in Urethiol, and uh, Standard Dragons in Trektori. And then they disappear, and no one knows why. Um, oh, I mean, I know why, but nobody else knows why. Around 400 uh, years after that, uh, somebody messes with one of the important temples for the sea god, and he's on Grithadnus, and he just decides he's going to flood the whole continent. It starts a fight with the god of fire and creation, and the person who breaks it up is Arcanalus, who's the god of nature and magic in, in that balance. So he's got this double flail, and he strikes the ground and Grithadnus in between them, creating Nethesis Scar, which is this huge wild magic zone that fills 
continent with these roaming clouds of wild magic. But everything that Arcanalyst does has to be balanced, right? So the other side of the flail hits the top of Mount Nostraka in Urethiol and just sends the top of the mountain everywhere, covering the entire continent in magical debris, which is how everyone gets magical. Um, Luis Loza, who is my Urethiol writer, sent me this thing called the Death of the Heavens. So whenever the air gets choked up with this magic, a ton of birds just die. Um, and then maybe a century later, the Tengu show up, and they're just nomadic. They have no concept of culture or uh, ownership. So they just go around taking things, and then these oppressive human dynasties, the three grand dynasties of Urethiol, declare them as you know, kill on sight. They are diseased birdmen. Um, the Tengu stick around and deal with everyone hating them. Uh, but there are these, this subtype, or not subtype, a new race, that Savannah Broadway is going to write once we hit 13,000, I think it is, um, called Pengu, essentially penguin men. And their response to everyone hating them is like, screw you, we're going to go somewhere you can't live and don't talk to us ever. And the god of the sea really identifies with that, so the only people with access to high technology on Urethiol, the exception of the, the emperor of Verantai, the, uh, his golden personage of fortitude. Um, the Pengu are the only people with access to, you know, high-tech devices and uh, and super science, really. So we talked about them having power armor and ice cannons and all kinds of crazy stuff. They're the only ones in Urethiol that uh, have anything better than a boat. And then Grithadnus, uh, the advent of technology came recently whenever the first goblins from Trektori managed to make it across the ocean. You know, I, I could probably spend here hours just hearing you talk about that because it sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, there's uh, the Varanthia, I just updated before we were talking, there's a Tumblr, uh, varanthiacodex.tumblr.com, which you can find on varanthiacodex.com along with the video. But uh, I update that every other day, and right now I think there's something like 20 pages up there. So um, there's lots of meat uh, you can read about in Varanthia right now. That sounds... Not shouldn't do it right now because we're interviewing. Wait. <laughs> um, okay, so that's that's for the setting itself. How about the MPC codex? What's 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 bringing that? Uh, well, we're not totally positive on the layout of that because I don't know how many words I have because I don't have the money for funding yet. Um, I when I when I started thinking about putting this setting out, I tried to sell it to Adventure Week a couple times, and he just wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't taking, he picked me up for all this other stuff, but there just wasn't a spot for Varanthia there, and uh, the more I'm, the more work I do in this industry, the smarter I get to this, this dichotomy between, you know, it is a game and everyone needs to have fun, but, like, people make their livings off of these games, mm. and uh, so you've got to, you've got to find a good median between sellability and um, I'll say innovation um, and I thought like well, what the hell do I want to print what would I really want to have what would make me buy this product because I'm extremely frugal and cheap so like if I would be willing to buy the Varanthia Codex anyone should be happy to buy the Varanthia Codex and I went to pick up the NPC Codex one day and I was like man I wish this guy could be an alchemist and I was like well why why hasn't why is there no advanced NPC Codex and then it slowly started working my brain, and then sometime a couple months ago, I was like, oh, I can just tie that into Varanthia. And uh, that's that's where the codex parts came up from. My my desire to have an NPC codex with Samurai in it, really. So in in terms of um, the offering of what's coming in here, I mean, the, the Kickstarter page is saying that it's going to come with 30 pre-generated NPCs. Mm -hmm. um, Minimum. 
minimum exactly. So I presume they, they will come more and more as uh, hit goals are, um, are reached and stretch goals are unlocked. What do they have that's different or unique that you cannot find in other NPC codexes? Because let's face it, there are lots and lots and lots of there. Why should people be excited about yours? Okay. Uh, well, one of the things uh, involved in the Varanthia Codex is uh, rules tweaking. So I really like Pathfinder. It is an amazing system. It is my, you know, it's, it's the thing that makes most of my money for bills. And um, there's some house rules that I use, right? Like uh, I, I really like Gunslingers, mm -hmm. but it is just unbalancing to have one guy in the party who basically is going to hit every single time they roll the dice. So in Varanthia. Um, and there are a couple other things too, like um, why can't I have an NPC of the same level fight the party and have equipment that is anywhere near as good as the party's? Uh, why the psionics rules are really fun. I like adventures in psionics, but when I mix them with the core rules, there's a little bit of a power disparity. So one of the things in the book is uh, there's a bunch of uh, global rules that determine, uh, like, for instance, item attunement. An NPC gets to have much, much more stuff than they would normally have. And then because of, and it, it ties into the plot, something called the Consecron. Every hundred years, the gods get together and they, they lay down these decrees. And one of their decrees is that uh, anybody can only have access to so many magical items. So um, I think it's like in a regular game, you get up to your character wealth uh, in, the, in the table of the core rulebook times 1.2. And then in that same level, an NPC gets times three as much gear as they would normally get. And then there are custom feats they can take. So, like, if you want a really, really badass sword in the hands of an antagonist, you can give them a feat for it, and the PCs can never get access to that sword. Which changes a lot of the design assumptions whenever the player sits down at the table. Because then, like, that guy with, that, you know, that mercenary they thought they could just, you know, be a pushover is not so much. And I don't have to make that mercenary four levels higher to uh, last in combat with the party for more than two two rounds. So the, the, it's, it sounds like there is a huge amount of flexibility, but the work required to get the characters where you, or the NPCs where you need them to be has been cut down quite a lot. Yes, yes. And then we're, and if you're not using the global rules, we, we make that very clear in the stat blocks. We had an extra line called attuned gear. And then in brackets, it tells you how the NPCs statistics change whenever they're playing in Varanthia rather than in, rather than in your campaign setting. How many times or how do you test that that system is working in play? Oh, I use it all the time in my house games. I've been using that for years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I mean, I've done a little bit more item control and I actually started really playtesting attunement, um, I don't know, a couple, at least a couple months ago. And I haven't had any complaints. I mean, it's mostly just saying, it's like, here's the grass that you have been eating. Continue to eat the grass. We're going to build a fence around you like 20 feet away. Just don't, don't mind us. Um, if you want to play a really gritty game, your players will be getting slightly less equipment than normal. But even then, uh, I, I've never experienced any problems. And if you wanted to give them like a special item, there's also a blade of stuff. So um, one of the things is uh, mirrored weapons which activate, uh, that's the first thing I released actually, it's a free product in the Magical Armament Compendium Volume 1. But they are uh, mirrored weapons, they have an enhancement bonus, and then 13 charges per plus one enhancement. So every time that you make an attack, uh, there's, a certain, there's a certain trigger for the thing to, to, uh, to fire off. So uh, the mirrored spear, for instance, 
if you roll a natural one in an attack roll, it automatically uh, activates a mirror image and takes one charge off of the weapon. After 13 charges, its enhancement bonus goes down by plus one. So it's more of an encouragement for my players to use different weapons instead of just constantly pulling out the Holy Avenger. And it makes them consider their resources a lot more uh, carefully, too. Hmm. That sounds yeah. like it. That, that sounds quite exciting. Uh, and in terms of, um, I mean, as soon as you begin to, to hit stretch goals, what kind of NPCs are, going you, are, are you going to be adding to, to this part of the book? Well, there's a definite number of like uh, essential NPCs that we need to have for the campaign setting. But after that, uh, we, me and my writers need to sit down and figure out our breakdown because we're covering eight or ten classes, right? So if we've got 40 or 50 NPCs, that's going to be you know, four or five class and then a couple of the essential ones and however many we can squeeze in, really. Um, I'd like to tell you that I had a really detailed and uh, incredible plan for how the layout of NPC distribution is going to go, but I don't because, I mean, the book could be anywhere between 200 and 400 pages and uh, the amount that that can change is just a little too much for me to consider while I'm doing all the financial stuff and getting graphics together and the artwork and hmm. the four free preview PDFs. Like, those all took a lot of my time, and uh, I figured it'd be better to make all those decisions once I know I can afford to do however many thousands of words. That makes sense. That's fair enough, indeed. Uh, and how about the uh, the second part of the book, where you're going to get uh, the feats, uh, classes, mm -hmm. archetypes, everything in there. What's what's What's, what's in there? There's a lot. Uh, one of the things in there is the Best of Core, which is the first free preview PDF. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Attack on Titan. It's this really excellent anime that got a lot of uh, press here in America last year. Uh, I really like the anime, but some of the concepts in it drive me insane. Uh, like, they sh their entire bodies should be destroyed by whiplash. So, um, in my world, there's this whole area called the Dry Walkabout, this huge savanna, and there are these wells. Uh, called Onkshire Wells, made from the scarring, right? Whenever uh, Wee Alburn's got hit, some of his body uh, drops along, or, well, some of the water from his body drops onto the dry the dry walkabout and creates these Onkshire Wells. When you drink from the Onkshire Well, as long as you are a small-sized creature, you become, like, 10... You, you weigh, like, 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. So at that point, uh, you can be propelled around by gas canisters. So it's a prestige class where you drink some magic water and then fly around like a boss and slash stuff with swords. <laughs> and we have a whole bunch of stuff planned. One of the stretch goals is Mikko Calio. Uh, he's doing this really poppin' monster design contest right now and runs the uh, Sword for Hire blog. And I will have to find his email to figure out what he's writing. But on the, uh, on the list of things to write, write right now or that are written, there's a prestige class for, like, a raging uh, ranger that uses uh, ranged combat maneuvers. Mm -hmm. There's a archetype for fighters, so if you want to be really, really, really good with gauntlets and hitting people with your armor, okay. I can do that. Oh, the second preview PDF has another class arc, or another class thing in it, the uh, scientific innovator class archetype. So, um, um, did you get to read the technology guide yet from Paizo? No, I have not. Okay, well, I mean, I can break it down for you pretty quick. They took... Uh, uh, super science is equivalent to magic approach. Mm -hmm. So in order for a rogue to deal with like a computer panel lock, they have to have a special rogue talent or feat that gives them access to high-tech devices. And it's a very simple, um, design-wise, intelligent approach to how to do it. I didn't really uh, embrace that 
So we made the Scientific Innovator, which is an Alkins archetype, and the Craft Devices feat. So you're able to produce uh, up to sixth level spells as extraordinary effects through devices. It costs you a little extra money. Well, if you're not an alchemist, it costs you a lot more extra money. And then um, they're tied to weight. So depending on what the caster level is or the spell level, uh, you could have a device that is going to weigh 40 pounds no matter what you do to it, which is our, our caveat for it. There's an idol class archetype for the bard, a prestige class called the Green Avenger based off of Boris and like fake divine spellcasting, the Goblin Pistolier, the Lycanthropic Icon, which is like a were-monk, uh, the Nightmare Prognosticator, which is an archetype of the oracles tied to the Nightmare Gods, who are my... My love crafty and shadows in the cosmos. Uh, oh, the Merchanteer of Madalondo is really, that's a cool one. So um, one of my gods is called Madalondo. He's this gnome god of trade, commerce, and capitalism. And he seems like a really great guy that everyone likes. Uh, if you're playing a cleric, a paddle into Madalondo, whenever you hit 10th level, you find out what he really is, which is a despicable, evil, evil creature that is nothing more than to control everything in the world with an iron fist. So uh, the, he's lawful evil. And the knight, the merchant here of Madalondo will be a paladin that ends up doing a, a, a 180 around 10th level and is largely socially based for like diplomacy and stuff like that. And then the motorcycle rider. The, oh, there's an archetype for summoners where you summon a swarm rather than a regular creature. Mm -hmm. And then the wild mages, guys. And that's the start of it. There's more, and my, my guys keep sending me more stuff. So we'll have to... Uh, well, in the playtest document, we'll include everything that we write, and we'll take the best out of that and put it in the book. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, when you say you guys and your writers, how many people are going to be contributing to this? Oh, a lot. Um, <laughs> it's a lot, man. Uh, oh, I, I, it's over 30. Oh, bloody right hell, that's a lot of people. Yeah, well, that's if we hit all our stretch goals. Fingers crossed. If we don't hit all our stretch goals, it's uh, my core team is me, um, Michael McCarthy, who does stuff for Dreamscard Press and Paizo, is my editor. And then my writers are Brian Weiborg-Monster, Luis Loza, and Colin Strickland. My core artists are Jacob Blackman, Indy Martin, Nathaniel Bachelor, and Jack Holliday. And then um, Mark Curley is on as an add-on, so if you really wanted to get your, your picture in the book and you didn't want to go for the higher-level pledges, just pay 60 bucks and Mark will write it or uh, draw you out. Then I got a Brit, Julian Neal, I worked with on the Underworld Classes line for AdventureWeek.com. He's my like my mechanics genius to make mm -hmm. sure that everything remains balanced number-wise. And then Justin Gagan's doing layout, and Justin Andrew Mason is doing incredible, incredible graphic design. Just all over the place. That dice box, did you see the did I send you the dice box? Did you see that? Uh probably. Okay. I was gonna say he last night we um I've been kicking around the, the dice box add-on for a while, trying to figure out how to make it work. And uh, Justin Justin figured it out and sent me an enormous, like, uh, I, I was just blown away when I saw uh, what, he, what, he, what he had worked out. Um, and in terms of um, layout and uh, graphic work and, and basically the art direction, what can people expect to see when they, when they get the book? Oh, sure. Um, I was very careful in how I chose my artists. I uh, have had the pleasure of working with dozens and dozens and dozens of artists because of all the different publishers. The main continent is predominantly going to be illustrated by uh, Indy Martin, who does, and if you look at the Best Decor cover and the Scientific Innovator cover, she's the person who did that. She has this enormous, like, just, this, just gorgeous, gorgeous paintings. And then for uh, Urethiel, which is my, my Eastern-themed continent, uh, I picked up a guy named Nathaniel Bachelor. Uh, he's young, 
and uh, is just just starting to really develop. So I worked with him on an Adventure Week product uh, that's coming out soon called um, it's the Draco Premier Adventure Bath. The first adventure is called the Disaster in Dracal. He uh, did all the artwork for that, and that was a couple months ago. And what he turned in for the Master in Irons is already leaps and bounds better. So I can't wait to see as he as he develops. But he he's like a manga style artist which fits very well for uh, martial artists and wuxia fantasy. And then Jacob Blackman is doing the cover, and Trek Torrey. He does very, uh, I used to say very four-color work, but that's becoming less and less true. His line work's getting thinner. His coloring, shading, and lighting are all getting better. Composition is always amazing. Um, and you've seen Jacob all over the place. He's got a bunch of stock art stuff on uh, Rogue Genius Games and has worked with, with a lot of different people. I think Paizo has finally caught on to to the talent that is Jacob Blackman. And then um, my slush artist, the guy who will be tying in all the different uh, themes and doing all the stuff that I'm not anticipating, is Jack Holliday, who uh, has portfolios with Lewis Porter Jr.'s Junior Games and did a bunch of artwork for uh, Little Red Goblin Games for Dragon Tiger Ox. That sounds... That sounds really exciting. I mean, I, I can see um, just the covers that you're having in... Um in the Kickstarter page, right, they look... Jaws when he's, like, leaping off of that. Oh, man. Yeah. How do you make a mustache look good on a goblin? <laughs> like, that's the first thing I looked at. I was like, what? And I was like, I'm going to tell him to take that off. And I was like, well, actually, it's, that's a pretty sweet mustache. And, uh, yeah, no, Jacob is, is a consummate artist. Yeah. It, 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 it looks pretty, pretty decent. And when are people going to get this? I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume that this is going to be funded without any kind of complication whatsoever. Uh, when When is the book going to be out? Well, um, I've talked to a lot of different printers. I've gotten a lot of quotes back. I'm waiting until I have all my, my actual money before I, you know, so I know what my page count is and I can get a real solid quote. But um, it depends. Uh, I anticipate May of 2015 mm -hmm. because I'm getting, I'm getting all the work done. Uh, a lot of it is done. I've already written a novel's worth for Baranthia. But um, every, the deadline for everybody is January 1st, and then my layout guy gets it, and that gives us a lot of extra time, uh, about three months of time to get the layout done and to get it to the printer. And then it takes two months for the books to dry. Um, that's assuming that we're looking at like a 350, 400-page book. And it depends on which printer I'm going with. I talked to the people who print for Paizo. They've given me a very attractive quote, but that would require shipping across the Pacific Ocean, which means that I'm probably looking at another month. So if I go with Paizo, we might be looking at May. And then if we go, um, I've also talked with uh, Taylor Publishing down in Texas, who do all the books for Green Ronin. I still have my copy of a bunch of first edition Mutants and Masterminds books, same specs as that. And that would be a little bit sooner, uh, maybe April of 2015. Okay. And um, I don't know, once we know how much money we have, we're going to decide if we're keeping it domestic or not. That's kind of a, I'm going to let that be a group decision. That, that, that's fair enough. I mean, it sounds like you definitely have everything under control and have thought about it, which is definitely the most important thing. So, I was uh, very hands-on with AdventureWeek.com as they went through Rise of the Drow, and uh, I saw a lot of the, the, the foibles and pitfalls that caught up uh, Jonathan. And he still made a great book, and uh, we we're selling all of them. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I fortunately already got, got my, uh, my rookie run-through, sort of, by proxy. And, and now the obvious question that I have to ask, and I always ask everybody, um, let's assume for a second, which obviously is not going to happen, but let's assume for a second that this doesn't fund. Uh, what then? 
I will cry <laughs> so much. I will cry and cry and cry and then pay people probably for the work that they've done. Um, I don't know. Uh, we've talked about what to do if the larger stretch goals don't fund. Like if we don't get to my giant ocean floor walking crustacean cities, uh, we'll probably pursue that as a supplement line uh, for Rogue Genius games. But um, yeah. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't even really considered what would happen if we didn't fund. Well, let's in that case, let's not consider it because it's yeah, gonna fund, it, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> probably crying, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that will not come to pass. I'm. I'm quite sure. Um, Mike, thank you so much for for being with me today. As as expected and suspected, it's being an absolute pleasure to have you around. Uh, the Verantia Codex really, really sounds fantastic and very, very interesting. And I, I cannot wait to see you get a few ennies out of this. Oh wow, that would be uh it would be nice to get another any, especially if it was for my my house setting rather than Aventures. That would be pretty sweet. Yes, well, um he, here's for that to happen. Yeah, um thank you and thank you for having me on. This is great. It's a nice quick fast interview. That was, that was to the punchline, man. Um <laughs> if anybody is interested in the Veranthia Codex, I strongly encourage them to go to veranthiacodex.com uh where you can find links to the Tumblr which has dozens of pages for you to read about what's going on in Veranthia. And then if you go to the Kickstarter page, right at the top, under the video, there are four links for four free preview PDFs, so you can see the quality of work that we're bringing to the table. And um, thank you for listening to me talk about my, 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 my playground. And listeners, uh, links to the Kickstarter page and all those things are also going to be in the show notes on the website, so you have no excuse whatsoever. Uh, Mike, thank you very much indeed. Thank you again. Thank you for listening. Hosting and production for this podcast have been by Paco Garcia and the music's been composed by Kev Atzet. We would love to hear from you. Feedback and your questions are always welcome and you can email us at podcast.gmsmagazine.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at GMS Magazine. And we are also on Facebook and Google+. I'm very, very happy to talk to you. Remember to subscribe to the GMS Magazine podcast channels in iTunes and give us a review or two and a rating, please, and it's truly appreciated if you do. For more quality shows, remember to listen to other rooms like the RPG Room, the Interview Room and the Board Game Room and more rooms that might be coming very soon indeed. But, friends, until the next time, let the games continue. <laughs>